Dharma practice is a path of opening. It's opening to our bodies on many different levels. We go from a sense of the solidity of the body to awareness of particular sensations in the body to the awareness of the body as an energy field. It's a path of opening our sense doors. You've probably experienced already and will continue as the retreat goes on to see how our sense perception becomes increasingly refined. We see things with a freshness and a newness that is usually obscured by our more usual conceptual overlay. We open to the world of our emotions, uncovering a depth and a range of feelings, both pleasant and unpleasant. We open to our minds, to this sometimes flood and sometimes intermittent parade of memories and images, the things we might not have thought of, thought about for years, suddenly emerges in the mind. Our practice is not a reaching out for these experiences, but rather a settling back, a settling back into awareness. And with this increasing clarity, increasing awareness, we begin to see the essentially empty, insubstantial, transparent nature of this mind and body. A phrase that my first teacher, Munindraji, used many, many times, and it's really imprinted in my mind because of the frequency which he used the phrase. He would say, empty phenomena rolling on. That was his description of this whole process. It's just empty phenomena rolling on, empty of self. But there's one conditioned tendency in the mind, and one that we very easily identify with and get caught up in, that seems to freeze this flow of change, this flow of impermanence. It's like a deer suddenly frozen in the spotlights of a car, the headlights of a car. What has this freezing uh, effect in our minds, in our experience, is the very deeply conditioned pattern or tendency of fear. When we look at fear, we see that it is one aspect of the larger category of aversion. We see aversion work in different ways. Aversion is that basic not liking what's in front of us, not liking experience. In the presence of something which is unpleasant, which we don't like, the aversion can take the form of anger, where it's just striking out, striking against the object, the experience, the person. Some years ago, I read a news clipping about somebody's business brainstorm. It was a shop in Atlanta where people could come and bring their 
various technological toys, the computers and their VCRs and whatever drove them crazy. And the store had guns. And, and you could just shoot at them. <laughs> you know, just venting one's, venting one's anger and frustration. <laughs> just the image. <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> So anger is one form of aversion. Grief is another. The grieving for the loss of someone or something that's dear to us. And the third form of aversion is this contraction into fear. So tonight I'd like to talk about fear, of how it works in our practice, in our lives, and how we can learn to work with it, how we can transform it into a place of freedom. As you've seen, I think, often during these last weeks, as we're on this journey of opening, this path of opening, to our bodies, thoughts, emotions, sense impressions, at different times we come to boundaries, we we come to the edges of what is familiar to us, of what is comfortable of what is acceptable. And it's precisely at the edges, at the boundaries of what we feel comfortable with, that different fears begin to arise. Fears begin to emerge. It might be fear of pain, fear of physical pain. You know, we can be with this much, but it gets to a certain level of intensity, and fear can arise. There can be fear of certain emotional or psychological states. We can be with this much difficult emotion, but if it gets too intense, we come to the edge, we come to the boundary of what we can be with, then fear comes up. There can be fear of change. It can be fear of the unknown. It can be fear of death. The problem that this presents to us in our lives is that all of these boundaries, whether it's of pain, of different emotional states, of impermanence, of the unknown, of death, all of these things are actually part of our experience. They're true. And so we find ourselves in the situation of being afraid of what in any particular moment is the truth of that moment. So we need to learn how to work with the fear. Otherwise, our lives become very fragmented. We become split off from a part of ourselves, split off from a part of what is true in experience. The first step is learning to see what it is actually that we're afraid of. So we can recognize it clearly, see it clearly, to see what limits us, and then to explore the possibilities of going beyond those limits. When I imagine, and for the present it is just an imagining, but when I imagine the mind of the Buddha, you know, what it would mean to be fully awakened? I imagine it as a mind without boundaries. 
a mind without limits and therefore without fear. And so I see our path as being the path to Buddhahood in that way. We come to a certain edge, fear arises, we learn to open. Gets a little bigger. We come to another edge, fear arises, we learn to open. Our mind becomes a little bigger. So the possibility of awakening, it's both tremendously inspiring and totally connected to the practice that we're doing here. The Dharma is the totality of our lives. And the implication of this is that everything is workable. Even the very intense aspects of our experience is ultimately workable. So what are the things, what are the experiences where fear can arise? The experiences that when we come to an edge, a boundary, limit us. The most obvious and the one we can really work with in a a sense the most simply is the fear we have around physical pain. We've been very conditioned in our lives, and it's could almost say it's a natural conditioning, to avoid unpleasantness. There's very few people in the world, there are some, but few, who given the choice between pleasure and pain, oh, give me some pain. <laughs> so the conditioning is very strong. We become impatient with discomfort. We can see how this manifests in practice a lot. I mean, you've had many hours of observing this. Just notice the very small shifts of posture to relieve a discomfort, relieve a pain. You can be sitting, and it need not even be strong pain or intense pain, but there's a slight discomfort in the body, and if we're not really mindful, there's this automatic straightening or shifting or moving simply to alleviate that discomfort. A very interesting exercise to do is to watch throughout the day to really investigate why we ever move. Why do we move? Why do we change position ever? You know, you're sitting. The Buddha, it said, sat down under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment, he said, I'm not going to get up until I get enlightened. Imagine coming in here and doing that. Unfortunately, he was enlightened that very night. <laughs> but maybe it just took that resolve. We move at a certain point because it gets too uncomfortable and we move to avoid the pain. Well, then why not just keep on walking? You know, just do walking meditation. Why do we stop walking? Because we get tired and we want to sit. Now, why do we eat? To alleviate the hunger, uh, the suffering, the pain of hunger. Why do we go to the bathroom? Why do we lie down? At one point in my practice, I thought, I just want to see what would happen if I, if I get in to the most comfortable posture I could imagine. So I got this big, foamy, this was in India, I don't know where the foamy came from, but <laughs> somehow it appeared. 
you know, thick. It was really thick. And I just lie flat on my back. Nothing was crossed. You know, there was no, nothing was bent. I, I, it was like that. To, okay, I'm going to lie here till I get enlightened. But <laughs> sure enough, after a couple of hours, you know, I do not remember quite how long it was, but it was after a couple of hours, or three hours, whatever. Even in that position, the body started getting uncomfortable. You know, at a certain point, so I got up. And sort of watch through the day. There's a, there's a teaching in Buddhism that says, movement masks dukkha. Movement masks suffering. But usually we don't see it that way. Usually we're seeing it, we think we're kind of in charge and we move because we really want something. But to see it from the other side, that we're very often simply moving to avoid being with what's present, it's very interesting. It changes, begins to change our relationship to discomfort, to pain. There's often a fear of anticipated pain. It's not even what we're feeling in the moment. But you know how when you sit and there's maybe some slight discomfort coming, and then the mind starts imagining what the rest of the hour will be like. And we get afraid of the imaginary pain that we think is coming, the anticipated pain. This happens a lot in our lives. There's a, there's a Zen story which just provides a very useful image to remind ourselves of this. It's the story of a Zen monk who lived in a cave in the mountain. He was an artist, and he was a very good artist. And he painted, spent years painting, making this painting of a tiger on the wall of the cave. You know, in years, and painting, painting. It was so realistic. He finally finished it, looked at it, and gotten frightened. Well, we do that a lot. We... we paint pictures in our mind, look at them, and get frightened. So a very useful note when we see that happening is painted tiger. This is just a painted tiger. We don't need to buy into the fear. Fear of discomfort also can lead us or feeds right into desire. So it gets to be a very uh, sticky mindset. Years ago, I was on a retreat in England. And the food wasn't great. It was okay, but it wasn't great. So I would come down in the morning, and every, it was exactly the same breakfast every single morning. And so I would go through the line, and I would take some porridge, a piece, of fro- a piece of fruit, and I would take two pieces of toast and tea. And I started eating, and I realized after the first one, I really didn't want or need the, the second piece of toast. I came down the next morning, go through the line, took my porridge, fruit, two pieces of toast, and tea. The second day, I didn't finish the second piece of toast. Third day I came down, went through the line, porridge, piece of fruit, two pieces of toast. So at this point I was, what am I doing? (laughs) And I realized that there was a pattern at work 
I call it the just-in-case mind. <laughs> there was a fear. There was just a fear operating, well, what if I'm hungry? I better take the second piece of toast just in case. How often do we do that? And that's just another manifestation of fear in the mind, leading us to do things that we really don't need to do or don't even particularly want to do. Working with physical pain and discomfort in the practice can be very powerful because it is a very strong object of meditation. When pain is there, or even a mild discomfort, the mind doesn't wander a lot. It's just, they are focused on the object, so the concentration and the mindfulness can get very strong. It brings us right to the edge. Pain can bring us right to the edge of what we're willing to be with. So in that sense, it's a very useful object if we really want to explore what our boundaries are, what our limits are. And as we learn how to open to the pain or the discomfort without fear, with greater acceptance, we have a very direct experience of the selfless, changing nature of these sensations. And in this way, the insight into dukkha, into suffering, into unpleasantness, leads us into the insight into anatta, selflessness. Because we see very clearly, and this is not theoretically, when, when we're sitting, and really with those painful sensations, we are seeing very clearly, very directly, that these sensations are not amenable to our will. Have you not seen that? I mean, we could be wishing, oh, go away, go away. But it's not. It's following its own laws. Everything is arising out of the appropriate conditions. So we really get a, a very deep understanding of what anatta, of what selflessness means. Learning to open without fear to this domain of experience, of unpleasant feeling, unpleasant sensations, painful sensations, is very good practice for illness and for dying. You know, where we might not be able simply to change our leg position and the pain goes away. All of us, at different times in our lives, will be faced with circumstances whether it's some kind of disease or the process of dying, very likely will be painful or uncomfortable in some some profound way. How will we be with that? And so I see our practice here and our training ourselves in a slow and step-by-step way to reach our boundary, to reach our limit, and then to relax. Okay, can I open to this? Can I open to this? Can I open to this? And we really develop a great strength and equanimity of mind. Now often the Buddha would speak to people who were ill. and We read this in the suttas a lot. Where he would ask how they were doing and they would have these very graphic descriptions in the, you know, in the suttas of 
Oh, it feels like my body is being split into seven pieces and whatever. Painful. Description of some painful experience. And the Buddha would respond, again, just from that place of how can we use the situation to liberate the mind? He would respond, even though the body is filled with distressing sensations, can your mind be free of clinging? Can you practice that? And it just points to the possibility of practice for us all, and that's part of what we're doing here. One example of this, which is tremendously inspiring to me, is that of uh, Henry David Thoreau, who I think is kind of an American saint. He died young. He died at 44 of tuberculosis. But he had this tremendous wisdom. And this is a report by a friend of his. Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. Well, there's a practice for you. (laughs) So we can practice that, and we'll get reactive many, many, many times. But if we hold this as the possibility, as the direction, as we come to the edge, as we come to the boundary where the fear begins to arise, okay, can we relax? Can we open? Can we allow the mind simply to conform to the condition of the body? Enjoying enjoying perfect disease as well as perfect health. We can also turn our attention to the knowing of the pain, to the awareness itself. You might think of awareness as being an open window. And everything that's known, simply appearances, things arising in the openness of the window. But the openness itself, the openness of the window, is not affected by anything that appears in it. The more we connect with the nature of our own minds as being the openness of the window, even in the experience of strong pain, strong discomfort, to the degree that we are recognizing or connecting or abiding in the openness, we stay in that place of equanimity, of not being affected. And I've been struck so many times in my practice as I go from a place of tremendous ease and comfort in the body to the awareness of some pain or discomfort, And to see clearly that the nature of the awareness is exactly the same. The openness of the open window doesn't change. So this is what we can discover for ourselves in our practice.
to work skillfully with pain and discomfort and to slowly decondition the response of fear, we need to recognize different aspects of pain. First is pain as a danger signal. Now sometimes the pain is actually telling us something. If you put your hand in fire, oh, burning, 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 burning. If you put your hand in fire, it hurts. Take it out. That's wisdom. That's not fear. It's good to... The, the, the Dalai Lama had a phrase for it. He called it wholesome fear, which is really another word for wisdom. We can experience pain as feeling the accumulated tensions in our body, and see the awareness as being the space which allows them to unwind. And this is a very powerful way of understanding what's going on in the meditation. Now we're sitting and it's as if through the stillness of our mind, through the mindfulness that we're cultivating, we're creating the space both to feel this accumulated energy tangle, which is this system, And because we're in a space of non-reactivity, we're in that space of awareness, it allows for this tangle to untangle. And very often that's the discomfort that we're feeling. But if we see it in that way, it actually creates a sense of both interest and a certain quality of ease. It's letting things unwind. Sometimes we experience pain, it's a healing crisis. Sometimes, and, and there are many stories in you know, the, the Asian monasteries of people actually healing organic diseases through the meditative process, but the healing process involves going through the pain of it. Sometimes we experience pain, just old traumas to the body, some accident that we may have had years ago, but in some way is stored. We get to a certain place of stillness and we begin re-experiencing those sensations. There are also stages in our practice, stages of insight, where what's characteristic of that stage is unpleasant sensation. It's very useful to know this because our common interpretation, assessment of our practice, if it's pleasant, it's good. If it's painful, it's bad. You know, you sit and not here, but outside somebody asks you, you did you have a good sitting? Yeah, if it was pleasant, light, tingly, yeah, it was great. If you were racked with pain, I had a terrible sitting. The pleasure or pain is not the measure. And to know that as we go through various stages and perspectives on this path, there are times when the stage itself is calling up unpleasant sensations. There may well be a deeper place of practice than when it's all light. And How we relate, the reason I'm spending so much time on this aspect is because how we relate to unpleasant 
physical sensations, which is so much a part of the practice, can show us in a very clear way how we relate to other unpleasant experiences in our lives. Do we tighten? Do we contract? Do we defend against them? Or can we learn to open, to relate? In the face of unpleasantness, can we learn to open? Can we learn to soften? Relaxing into them and then respond appropriately. So this is the first area, the first big area where we can see fear arising. We come to the edge, the boundary of physical discomfort. So right there is a place to work. We might also have fear of certain memories or images which arise in the mind. And they may come as memories of specific things that happened in our past. There may be frightening things or terrible things. And these images come up and we can get frightened. Or they may be archetypal images. Archetypal images of cruelty, of rage, of all kinds of things. And the mind, at different times, these, these images can arise in the mind. If we're not aware, if we're not mindful in those moments, they can be the cause of great fear. They can be very frightening. Most of you are probably familiar, at least to some extent, with you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the whole, in Tibetan Buddhism, the bardo, that period after death, in that system before rebirth, uh, you know, with all kinds of disorientation and frightening images. And, and a lot of the practices they do are training for that bardo. Well, I had an idea, it was, this was going to be my great IMS fundraiser, to make a bardo machine sort of a virtual reality, you know, where you kind of put on these masks and earphones and programmed by some great lamas to actually give one the experience of being in the bardo so that one could practice. But then I realized that in some way our meditation is the bardo machine. You know, as we sit and watch our minds in all the various display, that is really a chance. Can we remain stable awareness, even when things are quite frightening. When Munindra first came to this country, (laughs) he was so not your typical picture of a guru, (laughs) which is what made him such a great teacher. When he first came to this country, he wanted me to rent him the uh, videos of just the worst possible movies. You know? Like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> you know, things like that. <laughs> things in a million years I wouldn't watch. But he kept saying, show me the worst. <laughs> because he, he was either showing me or showing himself or maybe just enjoying it. I don't know. <laughs> But it was like the test, it's just a movie. That's all it is. No matter what the images are, no matter how frightening, how awful, it's just an image. It's just a movie. Exactly the same 
for whatever is arising in our minds. It's helpful to remember that, to see through, so we don't get caught in that place of fear. So there's fear when we get to the edge in terms of physical pain. Fear which can arise with frightening images or memories. Fear arises often in the face of very difficult and painful emotions. You know, that shadow side in us which is often unrecognized, which we haven't looked at carefully. All those feelings, emotions which are unacceptable on some level. You know, and for different of us, it will be different emotions. It could be feelings of unworthiness, of jealousy, of abandonment. Feelings of failure, feelings of rage, feelings of hatred. Very painful feelings. Which somehow we have not yet come to a place of acceptance with. As long as there is fear and non-acceptance of these emotions, which are a part of us, they are arising, it leads to insecurity and it leads to fragmentation with us. It's as if some part of us is split off. And through this great inner pressure to keep these feelings at bay, the great inner pressure to not feel them, not acknowledge them, what happens is we construct this persona We construct a self-image. And that's what we're presenting to the world. And then we start looking to others for validation because we have not opened to and accepted really the full range of what's within us. I saw this so clearly in myself on my early retreats with Upandita. Even though I had the most tremendous respect for him as a teacher and so valued what I was learning, I found it extremely difficult to just go in and report totally simply, just to say what was happening, without interpretation, without defensiveness, because deep within me I was looking for some kind of approval. And this was on a very, it wasn't on a, gross level, it was on a, on a subtle level, but there. And so every time he would point out something, some lacking in my practice, of course I would feel terrible. I would feel completely judged. Jung had some very, the, the psychologist had some very good words about this. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. (laughs) It is disagreeable, kind of to see the shadow side. But as I became more accepting in my own practice of of all the unwholesome tendencies, of the various defilements, it became much more interesting 
to actually open to them and see them. And I got to a place of delighting in seeing them rather than not seeing them. And at one point I went into to an interview and I was giving my report and Upandita in his usual way was giving me this whole list of defilements in my mind. And I just started laughing. And that was the first time I laughed. It was amazing. Because from that our whole relationship changed. You know, something had finally happened where I could really come, yeah, this is what's happening. And really begin to see the impersonality of it. Didn't have to be defensive in protecting anything. It's essential in our practice that we really open, we come to the boundaries, we come to the edges of our emotional world, you know, these different mind states, the difficult emotions, the painful emotions. Can we come to the edge and do exactly the same practice as we did with physical pain? This is okay, let me feel it, let me open to it. It doesn't mean that we, we are looking for these great emotional upheavals, you know, thinking that our practice is not going well if we're not having some emotional catharsis. Sometimes people start digging, and that's not helpful either. But when they arise, as they might at different times, to really see that this is our practice, this is bringing us to a boundary, an edge of what we're comfortable with, and that's exactly the place we want to be. The great power of the meditation practice in this realm is that we slowly begin to see the empty, transparent, insubstantial nature even of powerful emotions. An image which I've often brought to mind is, and this is a good time of year to reflect on it, is as different strong mind states come, and again it can be Intense ones. It could be rage, it could be anger, it could be you know, feeling terrible about oneself and unworthy, whatever. It can be strong, powerful emotions to see them all as being kids dressed up in Halloween costumes. You know, I don't know, those of you from overseas might not know the American custom on Halloween and this holiday. Kids go from door to door dressed up in costume and uh, there's a trick or treat. You know, and they're expecting some treat and if you don't treat, they trick. And they come you know, dressed as a ghost, a pirate, a witch, whatever. So when they come to our door, we're usually not frightened because we know it's just a little kid in a costume. Well, all of the emotions that are arising in our mind, could you see them in the same way? It's just a kid in a costume. Why? Because they're essentially, content aside, their very nature is that they are insubstantial, selfless. They are not I, they are not self. They're just like shifting cloud formations in an empty open sky. 
Ajahn Chah, who was you know, this great Thai forest master, and with a tremendous down-to-earth wisdom in his teachings, he had some, a very good teaching about this. He said, within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> the untrained mind is stupid. <laughs> Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow, but the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself, and then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. It is the openness of the open window. We come to the edge with physical pain, maybe with certain images or memories. We come to the edge with powerful emotions. We also often have fear in our deepening experience of impermanence, of change, of loss, of fear of death. Now we hold on so tightly to this mind-body or certain aspects of it as being self, as being I, as being permanent. And sometimes we find it difficult to acknowledge and open to the moment-to-moment arising and dissolution of all phenomena. There's one line that occurs in a lot of the suttas, and it was a line that the Buddha or other enlightened monks or nuns would say, very simple line. And often in hearing it, the hearer would become awakened. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. It's so obvious that we don't plumb the depth of what it means. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. The change, decay, falling apart of conditioned, constructed things is inherent in their very nature. It's not that something goes wrong or that something's a mistake. This is the nature of every single aspect of our experience. As we begin to see this through our meditation and as the mindfulness, as the noting, the noticing gets stronger, you know, there's something I call NPMs. And it's notings or noticings per minute. 
know, when people begin the practice, maybe they have five NPMs. And then it goes up to 10 or 15 or 20. Maybe then 100 NPMs or 1,000 NPMs or the Buddha had 17 trillion NPMs. <laughs> we just begin, as our mind gets trained, we're paying careful attention, we begin to see this arising and passing away on such a microscopic level. We can have many reactions to this as we first experience it. There's one story of somebody jumping out of an airplane and the first reaction to kind of the free fall was tremendous enthusiasm and excitement and exhilaration. And that often is what happens in our first hit of this changing, arising, and passing away of things. You know, we're seeing it so moment to moment to moment. There is this sense of exhilaration of seeing this. But then the person who's jumped realizes that they don't have a parachute. So there's tremendous fear. You know, all of a sudden there's panic, there's fear falling, 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 and there's no parachute, there's no safety. So go through tremendous fear. And then at a certain point the person realizes there's no ground. So then they relax and enjoy the ride. Well, we go through similar stages in our meditation. As we see the truth of change, and really the dissolution of things, that there is nothing stable or secure, and that this is the nature of things. This is not an aberration. This is how things are. And we're just beginning to see it clearly. At first the exhilaration, then often real fear. You know, because there's nothing to hold on to. There is no security anyplace. Until we keep going, we go through that phase into a place of real equanimity and ease. And we understand the empty nature of it all. Not opening to the truth of change and impermanence on this level is often translated into a fear of death. That's the big change. Now, in some circles, talk of death is considered morbid or impolite. It's something you don't do. You, you wouldn't go to a party, necessarily, and talk about death. I actually committed a great social faux pas once. It was about 30 years ago when I first came back from India, and some friends of mine uh, invited me to do a wedding. <laughs> and I gave this wonderful talk about death. <laughs> I can't exactly remember the talk now, but I think I did tie it in somehow to the marriage. (laughs) But it didn't go over that well. (laughs) Because mostly in conventional society, people would rather not think about this. But the Buddha really recommended that we think about it daily that we reflect on it daily. Some of you may remember from, you know, quite a few years ago now, the Carlos Castaneda books, uh, 
about teachings of Don Juan. He had some, there were wonderful teachings in that book. Don Juan asked me to tell him what had been his most natural reaction I had in moments of stress, frustration, and disappointment before I became an apprentice. He said that his own reaction had been wrath. I told him that mine had been self-pity. He said, although you were not aware of it, you had to work your head off to make that feeling a natural one. By By now there is no way for you to recollect the immense effort that you needed to establish self-pity as a feature of your island. Self-pity bore witness to everything you did. It was just at your fingertips ready to advise you. Death is considered by a warrior to be a more amenable advisor, which can also be brought to bear witness on everything one does, just like self-pity or wrath. Obviously, after an untold struggle, you had learned to feel sorry for yourself. But you can also learn in the same way to feel your impending end. And thus you can learn to have the idea of your death at your fingertips. As an advisor, self-pity is nothing in comparison to death. This reflection on death, really making it a part of our lives, making it real for us, in a very powerful way, illuminates our attachments. We see so clearly in a reflection on our own death, and the truth of it, and the inevitability of it, just where we're holding on, where the fear is. It reminds us to let in this great truth of impermanence rather than fear it. We talked of things just in our lives and in our meditation where fear arises. Could be fear of pain, fear of certain mental images or memories, fear of intense emotions, fear of change, of dissolution, fear of death. So the question is how to work with the fear when it arises, because it will arise for all of us at one time or another. The most simple and basic way of practice is that we need to recognize it when it arises, when it appears. And here the noting, the actual noting as a technique could be so helpful. Fear, 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 fear. And to to watch the tone of voice of the note so that the tone is neither aversive nor fearful. The noting is a shorthand for that quality of mind which is open, which is accepting. As many of you know, one of my favorite Vipassana mantras came in my working with fear, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, let me feel it rather than being afraid to feel it. We can begin to unpack the fear. The fear is a complex constellation. There may be images in the mind, there may be thoughts. And most helpfully, to, to look at the sensations in the body, to feel the sensations in the body. 
Can we be with all of those elements of the fear and to see them clearly in the same way we would be with a frightened child? You know, if there were a child that were frightened, how, we, how would we be? We'd probably be very supportive. It's okay. It's okay. Can we be that way with ourselves? Sometimes in our lives, we may feel reluctant to feel fear because we think in some way that it will weaken us, somehow disempower us if we let the fear come in. And there's an interesting example of this. It's a couple of years ago, you know, I've been teaching at this uh, contemplative law program where it gathers law students and lawyers and judges and uh, for a short quasi-retreat, teaching mindfulness and a lot of discussion. And there was this one young law student who in the discussion said, we were talking about anger, and he said, I need my anger. When I'm, when I'm practicing you know, to be a lawyer, I need the anger because if I didn't have the anger, I would feel the fear. And I just kind of took a deep breath because it was so startling to me. I mean, clearly mindfulness was not on the law school curriculum. And there was not the education, the understanding that the acceptance of fear is a much greater source of strength than the holding it away and having it rebound in anger as a way of not feeling it. Our ability to open provides stability, provides a a great strength. Becoming mindful of it, accepting of it, it's okay, noting it. We can let go, we need to let go of expectations and models of our practice, of how our practice should be. Because times of difficulties can be a tremendous gift. Gurdjieff, he expressed it very well, he said, those aspects of yourself which seem to be weaknesses may blossom into the true strengths of your practice, while the apparent strengths may well be the real weaknesses to overcome. To take what is most difficult for us And to see this is the place, this is where the work is to be done. This is where the strength is to be had. So in our practice, kind of playing with the edges, maybe it means sitting a little longer. Maybe it means, you know, studying with Goenkaji, one of of my teachers, he had uh, in his retreats what he called vow hours. With certain sittings during the day, you took a vow not to move. And it got pretty intense. Just sitting, okay, vow not to move. Especially he'd go off, he'd start the sitting, then he'd go off into his little room off the meditation hall, and you could hear him eating an apple and reading the newspaper. (laughs) And we're stuck in this vow. (laughs) Few thoughts arose in the mind. It was very powerful. 
So we, we take a slightly softer approach. Instead of vow hour, vow anything. You know, it could be a vow 10 minutes. It could be a vow 20 minutes. Take some, or for the whole hour. Take some period of time where you make that determination. For this period of time, I'm not going to move. Let me die. I want to see what will happen. And it calls up. You know, all the fear. It brings us right to the edge. We learn how to relax, to open to it. Okay, this is okay. Let me feel it. Maybe sleeping less or gradually reducing the amount of sleep. That's another edge. We also need the wisdom and courage to know when the suffering or the pain or the difficulty is too much, when it's overwhelming, when we don't have the balance, when we don't have the strength. Because at that time, the wisdom and the courage really is to retreat a bit, to back off, to relax, to open up, not to be trying to push through at those times until we regain the balance and then again proceed. Lastly, it's investigating the nature of fear itself seeing that the fear is just a mind state. It's nothing more. It's another kid in a Halloween costume. See what triggers it. If fear is a strong pattern in a particular time, see what the trigger point is. Is it a particular thought that arises that triggers the fear? Is it a particular mind state, emotion, sensation? Begin to see that fear itself is just another conditioned state, another feeling. The Dalai Lama, in his, with his usual wisdom, kind of put it all very simply. Somebody asked him, how can we work with deep fears? He said, if you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry. If you cannot do anything about it, then there's also no need to worry. (laughs) The energy that holds it all, that really holds our ability to work with fear in all of these ways, in all of these domains, is the quality of metta, of loving-kindness, quality of trust. It's that basic friendliness, that basic quality of care and of interest in what's happening that gives us the courage to be with things just as they are. I'd like to close with It's a couplet by Goethe. He said, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. That's the quality we can bring to this investigation, to this great journey. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius and power and magic in it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.